0: Welcome to New Books Network and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm here with Ana Maria Reyes, who's an assistant professor in the history of Latin American art and architecture at Boston University. We're here to discuss her latest book, The Politics of Taste, Beatriz Gonzalez, and Cold War Aesthetic Discourses, which was published by Duke University in 2019. Welcome to New Books Network in Latin American Studies, Ana Maria.
1: Thank you, Sharika, so much for this lovely invitation.
0: Thank you for agreeing to do the interview. I'm really looking forward to our conversation about your work on the Colombian artist um, Beatriz Gonzalez and her mentor, um, Marta Trava, as it helps readers to understand the ways in which art intersected with politics and society in mid to late 20th century Colombia. I was thinking that we might begin the interview, however, by having you talk a little bit about your intellectual or personal biography, if you will.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I'm i associate professor since the last time you sent me an email. So I was just... Congratulations. Tenured, yes. Thank you. That is very exciting. Uh, my uh, My intellectual biography is actually... Exciting, uh, in the sense that I went to the University of Chicago. I actually my undergraduate degree was in um, neurobiology, if you can believe it, uh, neuropsychology, and it was uh, when I realized that I was interested in human behavior, but not in in putting electrodes on rats or or in you know working in the lab or working with human subjects. And I found that history. And art allowed me to, to study human behavior from um, a more comprehensive uh, perspective. So I studied at the University of Chicago, where I really, that's really where my intellectual uh, journey began. And I had, uh, my advisors were incredible. And I was basically taught how to think uh, by people like Tom Cummins, Marty Ward, um, W.J.T. Mitchell, Homi Baba. Uh, and many and many others who really just uh, gave me the the, the correct toolkit um, to embark on, on intellectual inquiry
0: well then how did you come to um, to this project how, why Colombia and why this particular uh, set of artists
1: uh, yeah so i have i had always i am Colombian I was born in Colombia, and um, I was very interested in. Uh, issues of violence because we in my entire lifetime, Colombia has been going through an armed conflict, and uh, artists, uh, intellectuals, poets, uh, playwrights have been very very involved in not only representing the historical moment they experience but also intervening in it. Uh, and so i I began I began working on, Uh, contemporary art. uh, But at the moment, about the year 2000, when I started my research for my dissertation, the war was uh, escalating. And uh, we had a a president that took a hard line. And some of the artists that I was interviewing had death threats. Um, The scholars I was interviewing had death threats. Some of them actually survived assassination attempts. So I took, I cooled off a little bit and realized that I could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I started to really inquire into an earlier moment of uh, violence, which is known in Colombia as La Violencia, and its immediate aftermath, which was a peace, a period of um, negotiating peace, very much like the one we're living right now. And I was particularly interested in how the cultural sphere uh, negotiated uh, these all these new um, forces and political discourses, and so after doing quite a bit of research, Beatriz Gonzalez came out in a way as the heroine of my narrative, because she created works of art that sparked, that really ruffled spe- feathers, that sparked very strong debates. And I realized that um, that people could say about art things that they could not say about living people. So what started to come to focus was a very rich debate about the Cold War and about social anxieties, about demographic changes, that, um, that people were willing to vent in their response to art exhibitions, but wouldn't necessarily write anonymous letters to the newspapers. So for me, it was a combination of uh, how art functions on the imagination and how people ventriloquate through art um, to vent grievances. And so what came, what came to uh, the fore was really a, a portrait of a society living um, in a very precarious moment of the Cold War, Right after the Cuban Revolution, as Colombia was uh, the U.S.'s greatest ally in anti-communism and as it was defending a very fragile democracy after military dictatorship and um, with revolutionary fervor so it was uh, a perfect storm i was also really interested in contributing to cold war scholarship because columbia has is never discussed within that scholarship it's and it's been deliberate to leave columbia outside of discourses of the cold war precisely because um so much of it was in collaboration with the United States. And so rather than calling it a collaboration US Columbia, it was seen as a as uh, successful case of return to democracy. But really, what it was is uh, a very strong alliance of uh, powerful interests.
0: It seems to me that your work is in direct conversation with, um, a few new books that have, or well, relatively new books that have been, um, out on Columbia, particularly on this period, um, in the 1950s and sixties. One I'm thinking of is Robert Carl's, uh, Forgotten Peace, um, which we just, um, one of my colleagues just had an interview with him. So it's now available on New Books Network and Latin American Studies. And also of Amy Offner's work, Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, um, this really pivotal time, as you mentioned, that has been um, sort of overlooked, at least in the English language scholarship on Colombia for the reasons that you've mentioned. Um, you said that uh, Colombia at this time period was uh, the U.S.'s greatest ally. In what ways um, do we see that sort of manifesting in this time period, which is going to lead you into kind of the the art world and the responses that people had um, to the politics um, at that moment in Colombia?
1: So interestingly um the book is really about zooming in and out from the per, you know the personal narrative certain per- people and key agents uh, key agents of change or in the government uh, are are artists uh, and then zooming in and out of the macro and if, because of course history is made up by <laughs> by individual human beings and perhaps the one person that um, certainly dominates uh, Robert Carl's book, and here in the political narrative of my book is uh, President uh, Alberto Yedas Camargo, and he um, he he was not president during the time period of um, that I cover, which was 1964 to 19 to 1970. But he does lay the ground. He does found um, the National Fronts government, which was a coalition government. And that serves as the, the political infrastructural backdrop. Um, and he's, uh, he's a key figure because he was the, um, the uh, general secretary of the Pan American Union, that then became the Organization of American States, serving as its first secretary general. Um, but he was also deeply invested in the role of arts and culture. He was very close friends with Nelson Rockefeller, uh, who was a very strong agent uh, throughout Latin America and promoting modernism and the opening up of modern art museums and he um, so he designed the the National Front coalition government um, and he was a modernizing force that was a fierce anti-communist and he worked uh, he solicited help from Eisenhower to protect what he saw as a very fragile piece and that's what in many ways what uh, Robert Carl's Book is about, um, but he also turns. Uh, uh, I, I think you know the unintended consequence for was to turn the war inward, to use U.S. funds m- intended to protect uh, towards external enemies, primarily the Soviet Union, to internal enemies, meaning um, uh, you know guerrilla groups that were fighting for for a whole plethora of causes. And um, and so he's actually an important figure throughout the entire book because he's a founder of the university where Marta Trava taught, Beatriz Gonzalez studied. He was a, bit, a firm advocate for the modernization, including of culture and the arts. Um, and he... Um, he was a, uh, and you know, a player with with the turning of an armed conflict that was about the Liberal Party versus the Conservative Party to one that was about the state versus uh, counterinsurgency forces versus insurgency forces, and so that is. Um, directly related. There are actual connections between the Rockefellers. Kennedy came to Colombia by the invitation of Alberto Lleras Camargo. Camargo, along with uh, Joselino Kubitschek from Brazil, uh, were important architects of the Alliance for Progress. Um, So these are just key figures in the narrative of the era, and they uh, they are quite literally those who wove in the culture with the politics. So... Um, so for me, it's relatively easy uh, because you just have to uncover those connections and they're there. They're, it's, it's not conjecture by by any stretch. So tell
0: us a little bit about the art scene in Colombia in the years leading up, I guess, as uh, Beatriz Gonzalez is, you know, starting to develop her own kind of art aesthetic. She's a student and then subsequently, you know, she will... Be an artist um, on her own right. Um, what were the the trends? Um, what was deemed um, kind of you know high value um, among Colombian elite?
1: So uh, that's a great question because Colombia has um, an interesting history there. And uh, the watershed moment was the arrival of Marta Trava, who who is an Argentine art critic. Uh, who had trained in um, in Argentina with um, a, a modernist, uh, Jorge Romero Brest. And then she went to Europe uh, where she studied uh, art history in Europe in a, mo- a very, very key moment right after World War II where the hangover from the war loomed large and certainly anxiety around fascism and the role of of uh, the, pop- the masses in fascism was, um, was a primary concern. So she goes. She goes to uh, Europe and she meets her uh, husband Alberto Salamea and comes back to Colombia, uh, married to into a very uh, important intellectual family. Um, so, so this is so her arrival basically marks the 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 terrain in which uh, Beatriz Gonzalez's career would emerge. But prior to Marta Trava arriving, uh, the art worlds and the art world debates primarily enacted through the national salons were uh, in a way uh, related to the, the war of la violencia, the war of conservatives versus liberals. And the way that played out in the cultural sphere is that the liberals were interested in, um, in Americanism and social realism. Uh, Not socialist realism, which is a Soviet uh, type of art, but social realism, which is much more uh, connected to the Mexican mural program, to the federal arts program in the United States, uh, but primarily the Mexicans. And uh, the idea was to create a socially conscious figurative art that had very strong um, ties to Indo-America. Into the working class, uh, and and it, it, um, an art that would be public, and so murals, uh, prints, uh, works that would be accessible beyond the elites. The conservatives, on the other hand, still valued academic art. and um, in fact, Laureano Gomez, who was a um, was probably the fiercest fiercest of the um, conservative. Presidents, in fact, a fascist mind, uh, had emulated Nazi discourse on degenerate art and rather thought of uh, uh, classicism as the only universal and the only that beauty and the classical standards of beauty are the only true important universal art. So when so that wasn't a major impasse. Uh, when Trawa arrived. And when she arrived, in many ways, she functioned in tandem with Alberto Lleras Camargo, because she brought in another language that was neither the social realism of the liberals nor the classicism of the conservatives, but rather uh, a discourse on modernism and a discourse on abstraction being an art of our times and not an art of our place. Which is what the Americanists wanted—an art for our place. So, um, at that time, roughly around the same time, the Catholic Church was also reevaluating modernism and reevaluating uh, abstraction as a means to um, to seek another universal. That artistic intuition was a means to uh, to access the soul. So there's so in tandem, the Catholic Church is reevaluating its relationship to the art world. And they're saying, you know, abstraction is a perfectly spiritual art. So many abstract artists are seeking a spirituality. And while it may not be uh, Catholic dogma, it is a way to understand creativity and intuition as means to understanding the human soul and approach God. So when Trava comes into Colombia, she said, oh, Mac- you know, Mexican muralism and social realism is pro- political propaganda. That's kitsch. That's too close to what the Soviets and to th- the Nazis were doing or Mussolini. Um, and um, he in academic art is an art of the 19th century, not of the 20th century. We live in an era of the machine of uh, relativity, um, and abstraction is the language where we can retrieve some of the spiritual loss um, that we've we've that we have um, experienced through the mechanization of life. So what made her so interesting was a, she was extremely uh, erudite and well spoken and articulate. Uh, She came with uh, a degree in art history and a pedigree in being in the art world that did really didn't rival anybody. You know, no one could rival her in Colombia. But mostly because she was talking about modernization, and so uh, all of a sudden, her discourse on culture uh, gave literally gave an image to the discourse of modernization that was being propelled by the newly instituted University of Los Andes, where she would eventually teach and Beatriz Gonzalez would graduate. Uh, 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 Alberto Lleras Camargo's idea for the National Front to be a modernizing, um, to to leave the dark ages of La Violencia and enter the 20th century. So um, abstraction, modern arts, internationalism, all of those things resonated with a new post-World War II and post-Violencia Atmosphere, and so while she was extremely, uh, uh, she was p- extremely talented in what she did. Uh, There's no question in my mind that had she been extremely talented in a discourse that didn't line up with the National Front, with the industrial class, um, and with the United States, she wouldn't have been given the platform and the power that she had. So that's uh, so proceeding, leading up to Beatriz Gonzalez's career at least uh, when she really becomes uh, an important force, you have the primary artists were all international modernists, working in abstraction, working in abstracted forms, and certainly interested in an international universal aesthetic and not a local and political aesthetic.
0: And... You mentioned that Traba eventually becomes the, well, a mentor, but a teacher to um, Beatriz Gonzalez when they're both at the University of Los Andes. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Beatriz Gonzalez starts to respond to this kind of um, existing uh, discourse of abstraction, modernist art, and, and how she comes to, as you point out in, in your book, challenge it in a variety of ways?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the most um, enigmatic and paradoxical aspects of uh, Beatriz Gonzalez because she she still continues to talk like a high modernist, uh, even though her works in many ways are what one could say the breaking into postmodernism in Colombia. So she she learned, uh, you know our, our criticism and our history from Marta Trava and those lessons stayed with her, and they still operate her aesthetic judgment today. Uh, and so, she, when she, for instance, when she was teaching, she did begin painting abstracted images. Uh, her the first chapter of the book deals w- uh, with a series based on um, a, a master, uh, you know, a, a Dutch master, Johannes Vermeer the lace maker, which is small painting in the Louvre, but she abstracts it and does all these variations. So it's, it's absolutely a formal, uh, at least the way it was written about at the time, it was a formal experimentation with an artist that most modernists are fascinated by. Um, and so, even though he's uh, obviously not a modernist, he's an early modernist, uh, early modern painter. Um, but when she, um, but it's so interesting because she she flipped to the media, the mass media, to um, popular culture, to to in primarily uh, reproductions in the press, and she started ma- painting them in what what most people would call a pop art style. Her her language about her works never changed. It's still highly formalist. She still defends that the reason she picked. Uh, those particular clips from the newspaper were based on formal properties. That changes with um, with the first president after the National Front that she be- starts to ridicule, and then eventually she starts to paint dirges uh, of um, you know grief for all uh, the loss and the the next wave of um, violence, the one that that was you know unraveling as I was doing my research. Uh, but that part, that early period where she really opens up in a in a strong way, what we call postmodernism in Colombia, she was still completely um, thinking along the lines of a form, a formalist. Approach. She was. Uh, it's just that she was dealing with popular culture, and in doing so, in that historical moment, um, un- whether she uh, whether she celebrated or not, she aroused extremely polarized uh, reactions.
0: Well, her early success, um, as you pointed out, with the lacemaker series um, brings her to prominence. You know, brings her to the awareness of the art world. And yet, she, as you, as you kind of alluded to, but perhaps we could talk more at length about, she starts to take this turn um, into topics um, which you um, describe and explain as in, in Spanish, lo cursi or, or kind of tacky, um, and you can kind of elaborate on that. I wanted you perhaps to talk about um, this first kind of direct challenge to the established norms of kind of this international kind of modernist approach to art with the um, Siska's Suicide um, Works, that, that series that she, she um, did in her second round of kind of uh, national acclaim.
1: Right. So her, so her first series, if you can, if your readers or your listeners can imagine, um, the late, the famous uh, Vermeer lacemaker, maker, uh, were abstracted forms of that. And she did, um, I can't remember at the mo- off the top of my head, how many canvases, but something like thirteen. And um, they they're beautiful, right? They're very sophisticated. They're technically um exquisite. And they deal with it, the canon, right? The canon of universal arts. This painting that was universally celebrated by modernists um, that was re- that was rediscovered in 1918 in Paris. Uh, so that that earned her the badge of being everything that uh, the National Front wanted culture to be—to be proof of a society's of Colombian society's sophistication proof of its international uh, relevance in universality um, and its updatedness in in the in using abstraction as a language and so in many ways what what the uh, uh, Vermeer series does the Encajeras or the lace makers do is to um, to to legitimate that discourse and um, and when her over um, it she she won a very very um strong reputation as the next best thing in the art world in Colombia, so it's quite interesting that the next uh series that she works on is in in many ways a one eighty flip in other ways, it's a continuation. If you actually look at some of the Vermeer paintings, you'll see that they're very similar in style to the painting she made called this the suicides of the Sisga Lake. Um, so it's not a stylistic flip. It's a content flip, which is what's so interesting to me because uh, when you look, when you read all the literature written about the uh, Vermeer lacemakers, no one talks about the subject. They talk about the form. It's a pure formalist analysis um, and the virtuosity of of uh of Beatriz Gonzalez in creating abstract paintings and variations on a theme um, but if you look at the very last ones that she does, ultimately called Verme- Vermirianas, which weren't part of the um, Museum of Modern Art exhibition, but went, did go on into other uh, exhibition competitions, they're very similar. So it's not that she it's not a, a radical departure in, in terms of style, but it's a radical departure in terms of subject matter. So while the first series is based on an, a, uni- a, a what is considered a quote unquote universal masterpiece. Uh, a work of art whose value has been legitimated through Western art history, to um, a paper, to a newspaper uh, clip, a uh, newspaper report, and not even just any newspaper report—a yellow press, something like the National Enquirer—of a um, a couple that had committed suicide and left a suicide note, where the man says that they committed suicide to liberate her from sin and um so this is a gardener and his um and his girlfriend who i uh, was a domestic worker and um it's more likely a homicide suicide than a um double suicide And so, interestingly, this happens. um, Beatriz Gonzalez sends the first of her series of suicides to the National Salon. And so um, that was highly outrageous to think of taking something from the yellow press, something from like National Enquirer, and elevating it to the stature of the National Salon and then enhance history painting, right? This suicide is now in a a relatively large format and presented as, in the National Salon as um, a sort of a revision of the history genre. Um, So that in and of itself was outrageous and in many ways opened up the doors for artists to look to mass culture, urban mass culture, not, you know, folkloric artisanal rural uh, peasant culture. And um, but also, and what I argue in that chapter that uh, I have no doubt influenced people's responses is that the newspapers were absolutely filled with um, uh, uh, op eds and reports on the population council meeting that had taken place two weeks earlier, where again Alberto Yeras Camargo, this president who looms, um, you know. It, overtly and covertly throughout the entire book was um declaring that the only true humane antidote to a Cuban cuban revolution in a country with extreme poverty like colombia is the birth control pill right so women's reproductive rights um and actually that's an anachronism because no one discussed women or their rights. It was all about birth control as population control, uh, it was being discussed in the press fervently in the country that prided itself as being the most Catholic country in the world. Um, prior to the papal, uh, pronunciation on birth control that, uh, a, that a woman, uh, a couple would have committed suicide to preserve the woman's honor would be then described by the word cursi. So the whole book really revolves around this word cursi, which uh, is used from that moment on to characterize Beatriz Gonzalez's work. This is not a word that she uses. It's the word that just, she becomes pegged and characterized and it becomes a signature for her, not her own signature, but uh, the label that Marta Trava and everybody else uh, begin to applaud her as the painter of the cursi. Now, the cursi is really interesting word, and I spent quite a bit of time um, on, in the introduction unpacking it because sometimes Trava eventually... Uh, uses the word "kitsch" as a synonym, as a translation, but that's an that's not a good translation because kitsch has a whole theoretical apparatus associated with it um, that that is um, it, that is a reaction to the um, the 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 malleability through uh, mass culture of uh, the masses in um, in Nazi Germany, and so here Kursi. Has a connotation of of behavior. So a cursi behavior um, is one that is excessive and uh, low uh, lowbrow, excessive, overly sentimental, and it's a word that's typically associated with ridiculing both women and the lower classes. So by calling the works that Beatriz Gonzalez did, Cursi, it really kind of revealed the fact, the uh, anxieties that these works were um, were unleashing uh, in terms of both demographic changes uh, for ch- uh, or social changes and social norms for women, as well as the demographic changes uh, of, of the population, which had everybody quite nervous about a Cuban-inspired revolution.
0: I think um what's so striking and 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 very persuasive is how you lay out those two arguments. So the first um in first chapter where you're talking about the lacemaker series and and the kind of uh um uh, welcoming that she does receive from kind of the established art wor- um art world and those who consume, you know, this kind of art it's viewed as high culture art even though it's in this, you know, kind of abstraction form because of the content, it's deemed acceptable and then her next major kind of series of work um, is very controversial because of the subject matter which reminds, as you point out in that chapter really very effectively over the population control, how it just reminds people of the anxieties of change in particular cities like Bogota, the capital where you're having world or urban, you know, migration and changes, you know, after la violencia with the, the the downtown city and and I just thought when you read them back to back, I mean, your argument really um, comes out and you do see, as you pointed out earlier, that that paradoxical kind of positioning um, of um, Gonzales and yet she now has this this kind of whole you know lexicon being um, labeled now onto her work and she. Moves forward with it, um, and 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 I was particularly struck by um, your chapter on the um, polarization over the portraits that she did of the founding fathers of Colombia. Um, our listeners are probably more familiar with one of the two, Simón Bolívar. Um, also, also, you have um, Francisco de Santa um, de Paula Santander, and I would like for you to kind of talk about how um, her her move into, um, different types of content continues to kind of, um, you know, amp up, um, the polarizing comments around her work.
1: Yeah. So in in many ways, her different, uh, subject matters, um, irritate new, (laughs) new, new, uh, a whole new cast of characters, you know, when she, um, uh, starts to paint she she paints for the um 19 let me just remember it's the 1967 national salon she paints uh a tin diptych painted uh on enamel uh with enamel paint on on oval tins of uh the two founding fathers uh in colombia so this idea of the the uh, the liberals and conservatives, uh, you know, going into taking the 19th century wars into the 20th century is very much seen as a foundational myth. It's sort of a an, um, Cain and Abel story in, in Colombia where, where, uh, Simon Bolivar, who was from Venezuela, but he was the military man and he was, um, an authoritarian figure, um he was known as the man of the difficulties, whereas Francisco de Paula Santander, who was his vice president, but during the liberation campaign was actually acting president um they he was considered you know the man of laws and more of a federalist and uh so so there's there's sort of a lot of mythology around them being the founders of the two political parties even though none of this really adds up to his, to the historical record it's more of a mythology so when she takes these two foundational figures and she puts them on enamel paints um, onto tin, very much like the informal signage that was popping up all through Bogota with all what people called invasions, which were the the flights um, that characterized the whole world with industrialization, but in Colombia exacerbated by. The war and the violence in the countryside, where the face of Bogotá was changing entirely because of all these newcomers, it, the 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 city's girth expanding um, at incredible velocity. In fact, Colombia went during this period. Colombia basically went from being a primarily rural society to being a primarily urban society, and so the anxiety around. Um, uh, who is a rightful citizen of Bogota right who are the real Bogotanos versus who are the newcomers uh, was something that was palpable. so to paint the um, these forefathers, these sacred figures in a style reminiscent of the informal commerce that was popping up uh, due to this demographic change uh, really really offended especially the conservatives. Because the conservatives uh, see Simon Bolivar as their particular, um, as their founding father specifically, but also because Simon Bolivar had been uh, used recently by uh, the Soviets, the Cubans, Tito, and other uh, left leftist governments, and so um, there was this general sense that Simon Bolivar uh, was uh, being hijacked by, by the left of the world. And so, um, so that's a really interesting part of it. Again, this is one of those moments where Beatriz Gonzalez's work is uh, a catalyst for the venting of grievances that were much greater than the accusation of plagiarism that is, uh, you know, that is waged against her. So, uh, so, it's a, I actually published um, an edited volume of essays just on Simón Bolívar and partly coming from this realization that Simón Bolívar was a completely sig- uh, floating signifier uh, during the Cold War. And um, he lands in different places on different parts of this. Uh, uh, but, you know, Venezuela, he's always been a liberal leader in Colombia who was a conservative leader until the guerrillas took him up. And took up his unfulfilled cause um, as their cause, and so it's a fascinating moment for the icon. So this, so so Beatriz Gonzalez plays with that icon, right? And she presents him not only on uh, enamel on tin, but like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, right? Just a couple of months after Sergeant Sergeant Pepper's was released by the Beatles. So this was really, I think, uh, being a provocateur. And in um, being a provocateur, she uh, she provoked, and people responded with outrage, anonymous letters, um, declarations from you know editor, the general editor of the um, of the conservative newspaper. It was a splash, and that's exactly um, what made her work so powerful. That she was able to collapse the sacred cows with profane um, materials. And uh, and out of that detonation came out all of these anxieties about rapid changes that were happening, and um, and people's discomfort with them.
0: And yet, you pointed out both. You, um, really briefly in your, your response, but much more so in the chapter, how um, not only was uh, the response powerful and in many ways agitated towards this kind of um, reclaiming or misusing of Simon Bolivar's uh, kind of iconography, you know, his symbolism, but it actually had the potential to damage her, her burgeoning um, art career with these allegations of plagiarism. And that's where you um, reenter Marta Trava into this kind of account. So perhaps you could um, speak to the listeners a little bit about how Marta Trava really um, plays a a pivotal role, not just as a mentor, but as someone who can help you know, savage what is starting to get a little bit out of hand um, in terms of thinking about this particular set of artwork.
1: Yeah. So, but Marta is um an incredibly powerful figure in Colombian art history. And she does come up as a, a heroine in this book because she, she was in, uh, she was such a supporter of Beatriz Gonzalez to the point that Beatriz Gonzalez actually helped her reformulate her own theories about art. Uh, it's a much more complicated long story, but the reality is that Marta Trau was way too powerful, and she could make or break careers. Um, so her endorsement secured uh, Beatriz Gonzalez's career for sure. I don't necessarily think um, Beatriz Gonzalez's career in 1967 was in jeopardy because I think the conservatives. Had already discredited those last ones, you know, who were really standing up for classicism in the 1960s and 70s weren't, you know, weren't really, uh, they didn't have a much impact into into the course of, of the art world, for sure, because it was an internationally international, excuse me, internationalizing art world, a world where artists were going to biennials in Sao Paulo or in Argentina or in Venice uh, or working in New York. So there wasn't, I wouldn't say that those scandals ever jeopardize her career. In fact, she thought it was ridiculous for me to even mention it in a book because she thought it was so inconsequential. But what was so fascinating was to retrieve uh, the anxiety that her works, how, what are the dimensions that really, really, ruffled feathers with the conservatives. And so that was what was interesting to me was to see how Colombia was changing at an incredibly rapid pace. And people were very anxious about it. They didn't really quite know how to um, put language to it. But the but the, her works gave enough of a detonation where people could vent about what how they felt about that art that discloses uh, greater things. But Marta Trava just to answer your question more briefly, she was very powerful um, at this time, but she's eventually, around this time in 1967, she's actually kicked out of Colombia, then asked to come back in capacity as mother of Colombians, but no longer capable of interfering in, um, in education. Um, she continues to write, but, but eventually this is a moment where her it's more Marta Estrada's career that takes a spin downwards in Colombia than it is Beatriz Gonzalez's.
0: How does um, Beatriz Gonzalez, um, you know, how does she develop as an artist um, past this this critical period where we're where the... Peace efforts are leading now to a renewed uh, period of violence. Now with kind of armed groups um, spurring both in cities and in the countryside, um, as Colombia engages in a larger um, kind of civil war, civil conflict. Um, how do we position Beatriz Gonzalez in the seventies and eighties moving forward?
1: Well, so in the seventies, in the early eighties, she was still she was still engaging. Um, with her uh, really, really caustic humor, right? So her works are are uh, unforgiving in their humor. And she directed that humor uh, with the election of the president's, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's escaping me, <laughs> Turbaya Yala, uh, Gabriel Turbaya Yala, and Julio Cesar, excuse me, Julio Cesar, Uh, And he, you know, he comes in um, and he, you know, he he was kind of uh, ridiculed because he had a very nasal voice. He wore bow ties um, and he was seen as an incredibly corrupt president uh, who um, who people uh, just had no had no uh, respect for, certainly not in Bogota. And interestingly, he also introduces color television to Colombia and that's in the early 80s. So she starts to play with this idea of Dubai as kind of a circus act now in full color. Um, and so she basically, ha- her turning point is 1985 when the military took over the Palace of Justice and when that happened she she changes her tenor and she you know she goes from from um, being kind of a gesture court painter (laughs) in a way, not court painter, but like a a, a ridicule. She's definitely trying to provoke. She's a provocateur. And and that would be the way, the best way I could say between, you know, between the time where she moves beyond the uh, Vermeer paintings and the time where she's painting uh, Turbaya Yala's, um, portraits, she's really provoking. She's trying to make art that unsettles, trying to make art that, um, that sparks strong reactions. And she's extremely successful at doing that. Um, after 1985, she goes into a lamentation. And her, so her works, while well, they still have some of the um, key characteristics of her previous works, which is to work from um, photographs of the press, um, and with colors that perhaps um, seem a little out of place, right? And I talk about that in chapter two. So she paints with really bright turquoises and yellows and very strong colors, but she's now painting dirges of lamentation for all the lives that are being lost. Um, and I think in, in that way, she's moving again to another revision of the historical genre, so she sees how these press images are—you um, uh, know—they capture and they fix in, in, in an image uh, all the, the the loss and the pain that Colombians are, are experiencing. But they they're fleeting because people forget the next day and they move on. So for her to be able to put them into the historical genre of painting is a way to really give them the gravitas that they that they deserve right all this pain and the suffering and not just a fleeting image in the press or a statistic, but really to give um, and a lot of a lot of the images are instead of dead bodies, some of them are, but a lot of them are the lamentations of mothers. And as a mother of a son who you know was of age to be drafted by the military, she felt incredible empathy for um, for so many mothers who were losing their children to this war. So it's a completely different tenor. Um, again, her style doesn't entirely change. She goes back to painting oil on canvas, um, and she she becomes less of a provocateur and more of a history painter. If if you know that would be my characterization. But again, you know she has her own. And my book really has more to do with how her form interacted with institutions and with the viewers who felt compelled to say something about it. So I haven't done that kind of extensive research onto responses of her later career.
0: Where could we find uh, examples of her work, Um, either in Colombia or maybe even in the United States? Are there museums that hold maybe a few of her pieces in their larger collections?
1: Yes, um, actually in the United States, the Museum of Modern Art has her work. she she's actually a prolific uh, uh, print artist as well. so you'll actually be able to find probably a lot of her prints um, in more museums that I'm aware of because of course with works on paper you you usually store them and only exhibit them for, little uh bit of a time because of the fragility of the paper but the big pieces um, the mfah owns the Bolívar um, the boulevard bed uh, the um, the moma owns I believe canción de cuna uh, which is a, a, a baby crib with uh, with baby Johnson painted in the middle and um, and, um, I'm trying to think the, uh, Blanton museum of the university of Texas, I believe owns one of her vanities and there are in the Tate museum bought her last supper, her last, um, you know, the, the, her last table, which is a painting of the la- Leonardo's last supper onto a table. Uh, I'd have to think some more, but he, they, she's actually becoming, she just had a retrospective that, um, that was at the MFAH, at the uh, Perez Art Museum in Miami, and uh, I believe the MUAC in in Mexico. So, and her works were in the Radical Women exhibition um, at Pacific Standard Time, and, as well as Home, uh, which I believe was in Mocha. Um, anyways, so those exhibitions, uh, you know, have their works in catalogs. Um, but she does have a catalog resume online, and you can retrieve any of her works. Every single one of them is um, cataloged in through the University of Los Andes catalog resume.
0: What was she like? I, I get the impression maybe you met her at least once or, or, or more, and what did she think about your project? <laughs>
1: Do I have to answer that question? (laughs) No, you do not.
0: (laughs) But you did a chance to meet her, though, Um, am I correct? Oh,
1: yes. I have about 12 hours of interviews with her. I have known her for many, many years. Um, I, you know, she, she, um, yeah, she's not a fan of my book because she's, like I said, paradoxically, I think she still believes that art speaks for itself. And my contextualizing a historical moment uh, really reduces the, um, her work. She sees it as she she's accused me of illustrating history with her work. But what I do is something completely different. Right. I I, I um, I'm a historian that shows works of art as players and protagonists within that narrative. Now, I have no I have no claims to say that my book will tell you what those works mean. What my book does is say that's what that work meant to that person at that moment. And this is what was happening simultaneously. And this is the building that it was exhibited in. So what I do is really show that people um, uh, engage works of art in an intellectual and emotional level that's highly mediated by their historical uh, moments or socioeconomic position and so many other things. But what using uh, her as a narrative thread was able to do is to show some of the shifting discourses that were happening in, in Colombia. Now what her works mean, well, she, I think wants to believe that her works have intrinsic meaning that that are uh, very closely aligned to what her intentions were. But I don't, you know that wasn't the book that I wrote. I wasn't trying to decipher her intentions. Um, I, I The only thing I did was speculate that she was trying to provoke people because she was successful at doing that. Um, but I was really looking at a historical moment and looking at how her works are key protagonists of that era, and that they reveal to us things that we could not find from other source documents. Uh, you know, going into the national archives and reading the letters that Alberto Yeras Camargo sent to Nelson Rockefeller or to John F. Kennedy um, were are not enough to give us a sense of the cultural manifestations of that very tense moment, fraught with anxieties about overpopulation, about revolutionary fervor, about uh, changing social norms, about. Um, you know, the, the changing faces of cities and her works of art were able to unleash people's, uh, responses that reveal those anxieties.
0: So Ana Maria, um, what are you currently working on? Do you have, um, an ongoing or, um, a new project underway?
1: Yes, I'm, um, I'm working on a second book and, um, it will, it's a book called, it's a third book, I suppose. Um, it is a it's a book on symbolic reparations and the peace process in Colombia, mm. and so what I'm looking at is a, a whole range of different forms of commemorations that have been um, either brokered through the Inter American uh, system of human rights, uh, or have been um, have been brokered by some of the um, transitional justice institutions that have been put in place. Or have been independent, um, have been independent artists that have worked on them, or or um, grassroots organizations, and really thinking about the um, issue of aesthetics of memorialization in these processes of trying to move beyond war into peace. And so, you know, I have. I've written quite a bit already about um, some examples, and hopefully if I learn the right lessons, maybe have something to say about um, how we can think about memorialization as a form of peace building.
0: Well, I know I I look forward to that, and and I'm sure many of our listeners do too. Thank you so much for the interview, Ana Maria.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to have an audience.
0: You can find a link to The Politics of Taste, Beatriz Gonzalez, and Cold War Aesthetics on New Books Network and Latin American Studies channel. Until next time.